I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. For just a buck a month, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes, in addition to knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent podcast. I've just released a Patreon episode on the word stoic, which comes from a word for painted porch. So if that's up your alley, you know what to do. You can also become a one-time donor at paypal.com slash wordsforgranted. All right, let's get on to today's episode, part four in a series on words derived from Greek philosophy, and probably the most philosophical episode of this bunch. If you were part of a jury in ancient Athens during the 4th or 5th centuries BCE, you would have to listen to two main orations, one on behalf of the plaintiff and one on behalf of the defendant. As we saw in the previous episode, the oration on behalf of the defendant was called an apologia, and it ultimately produced the modern English word apology. For those who haven't listened to that episode, an apologia was not the defendant's way of saying I'm sorry, but rather a self-defensive speech that tried to convince the jury that he wasn't guilty. Of course, one of the prerequisites for defending oneself in court in the first place is actually being accused of something. The legal oration that preceded the apologia was called the categoria, which is usually translated into English as accusation. Makes sense. However, Categoria would eventually pass into modern English as a word that has nothing to do with an accusation, and I think you already know what that word is. It's category. Before we trace the evolution of this word over time, let's do a breakdown of its etymology first. Categoria derives from the verb categorio, which was the ancient Greek verb meaning accuse. This verb is made up of two roots. Kata, meaning against, and agoreuo, which meant speak, particularly before an assembly. So originally, the literal meaning of the derived noun categoria would have been something like the act of speaking out in front of an assembly, and that's exactly what the original legal sense of the word meant. Before we go any further, let me make a quick note about the historical timeline here. The Athenian court system was a byproduct of Athenian democracy, which first emerged during the 5th century BCE. The fact that both categoria and apologia first appear in the written record during the same century may suggest that the court system itself directly produced this dichotomous pair of words. When new social, cultural, or religious institutions emerge in a society, Language often takes pre-existing words from an older context and repurposes them in a new context. However, that may not be the case with categoria and apologia in relation to the emergence of Athenian democracy. It's a minor but interesting point, at least to me. Back in the episode on apology, I failed to emphasize just how closely these words were bound at the hip early on, and as a result, I fail to explicitly state one of the most important turning points in the evolution of apology. Originally, an apologia was a direct response to a categoria, or accusation. Later on, when apologia evolved into a literary genre, 
particularly during the era of early Christianity, the function of the apologia was no longer to defend against a specific accusation, but rather to defend one's beliefs from criticism in general. With the categoria out of the categoria apologia dichotomy, apologias became more like self-righteous manifestos. So, what became of the word categoria once apologia was removed from this dichotomy? Come modern English, how did it evolve into a word meaning a class or division of people or things regarded as having particular shared characteristics? And what does it have to do with Greek philosophy? To answer these questions, we have to turn our attention away from the ancient Athenian courts and refocus it on Aristotle. Aristotle, as I'm sure most of you know, was an ancient Greek philosopher. He lived during the 4th century BCE and was a student at Plato's Academy. Later in life, he would actually go on to found the Lyceum, a rival school to Plato's Academy. Aristotle's body of work covers a vast range of topics such as physics, biology, literary criticism, ethics, politics, and logic, among many others. Aristotle's six main works on logic are often grouped together in a larger body called the Organon, and the first and most fundamental of these works is called the Categories, or Kategoriai in Greek. Contrary to the ancient Greek sense of Kategoria that we've considered thus far, Aristotle's Categories is not a collection of accusations. Aristotle's categories are indeed like modern categories insofar as that they are classifications of similar things, but they're unlike modern categories, well, in a lot of ways, and that's what the bulk of this episode is about. To Aristotle, the word category specifically meant an ontological classification of being, which is a very fancy way of stating a fairly comprehensible philosophical concept that we'll discuss in a few minutes, but before we get into that discussion, let's consider how the word for a legal accusation might develop a secondary sense, meaning a group of things with shared characteristics. If we take categoria out of its original legal context, then what we have is a word for a generic accusation, and indeed, categoria soon came to be used in this more generic sense. It actually survived in this generic sense long after its legal sense died out due to the demise of the Athenian democratic court. Anyway, an accusation, in a generic sense, is the claim that someone has done something wrong. This definition obviously has a negative connotation built into it, but if we took that same definition and removed its negative aspect, what we'd have left is simply a claim. Now, an accusation isn't synonymous with a claim, but it certainly exists on the spectrum of what a claim could be. An accusation without the negative aspect is more like an assertion. Unlike an accusation, an assertion is completely neutral. It merely calls something out for what it is. In theory, if an accusation is true, then an accusation also calls out something for what it is, but it does so in relation to the blame for wrongdoing. Well, during Aristotle's day, which was only a century after Categoria first appeared in the written record, the word began to develop a more neutral sense, which coexisted alongside its accusatory sense. I've seen this weaker sense of the word Categoria defined as an indication. 
Well, if you indicate something, or assert something, or call something out for what it is, in a sense, you are categorizing it, right? When Aristotle enumerated the ten categories of being in his Categoriae, this is approximately the sense of the word categoria that he had in mind. I say approximately because Aristotle's categories aren't simply formed by grouping like with like. Whereas you and I might put apples and bananas into the category of fruit, and fruit into the category of food, and food into the category of human necessities, and so on and so forth, to Aristotle, fruit, food, and human necessities wouldn't be considered categories. To Aristotle, a category is the broadest and most fundamental classification that things in the world could fall into. Imagine zooming out with your perspective until you could zoom out no more, and then grouping like with like based on their most abstract shared characteristics. Well, when Aristotle tried to do that, the ten categories he came up with were 1. Substance or essence 2. Quantity 3. Quality 4. Relation 5. Place 6. Time 7. Position 8. State or condition 9. Action and 10. Change That tenth one is sometimes translated into English as affection, but I think that kind of obscures the meaning. It means change. In the context of the whole of Western philosophy, and particularly in the context of ontology, which is the technical term for the study of being or existence, the term category is often a specialized term referring to classification at this highest level of abstraction. 2,000 years after Aristotle, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant attempted his own enumeration of categories, and he arrived at 12 instead of 10. Other philosophers, such as Bertrand Russell and George Hegel, have also commented on the ontological categories, usually in criticism or critique of the philosophical traditions preceding them. So, why would Aristotle, or anyone, want to do this? What is the ultimate point of making ontological categories? In short, you could say that the ontological categories first pioneered by Aristotle are an attempt to classify everything in the universe that doesn't depend on structure in order to have meaning. What this boils down to is a method for classifying the subject and predicate of virtually any truth-oriented proposition. Okay, so let's back up and make sense of what the heck I just said. The Aristotelian categories attempt to classify everything in the universe that doesn't depend on structure in order to have meaning. Okay, by structure you can think of grammar, and by meaning you can think of the intelligibility of a thing in and of itself. For example, the meaning of the sentence, Ray Belli hosts words for granted, is determined by, or predicated by, not only the words in the sentence, but also the order of those words and their adherence to the structure of English grammar. Without the form of a sentence and the structure of grammar, the meaning of that particular sentence falls apart. What we're left with is individual words, or more abstractly, individual concepts, which do in fact have meaning outside of the context of grammar. These individual words or concepts have meaning in and of themselves, and these are the things that Aristotle's categories seek to classify. So, 
The Aristotelian categories attempt to classify everything in the universe that doesn't depend on structure in order to have meaning. What this boils down to is a method of classifying the subject and predicate of any truth-oriented proposition. Okay, so now for that second part. In Aristotelian logic, a proposition is defined as a simple argument that asserts something that is true about the world. According to Aristotle, the simplest logical propositions are three-word sentences containing a subject and predicate connected by a copula verb, such as to be. A famous example of a logical proposition given by Aristotle is Socrates is wise, in which Socrates is the subject and wise is the predicate. If we were to classify these words according to the Aristotelian categories of being, which is the whole point of this exercise after all, Socrates is a substance or essence belonging to category 1, and wise is a quality belonging to category 3. In the lingo of philosophy, we would say that the quality of being wise is predicated by Socrates. In other words, based on the proposition Socrates is wise, the quality of being wise constitutes what is knowable about Socrates. Now, my usage of the word predicated there was very deliberate and technical. It's etymologically connected to the grammatical term predicate, which, if you think back to your third or fourth grade English class, means the part of the sentence containing the verb and stating something about the subject. In the sentence, Socrates is wise, is wise is the complete predicate. The reason I'm deliberating over this technical terminology is because when Aristotle's categories was translated into Latin, the title categories was universally translated as praedicamenta. Praedicamentum, the singular of praedicamenta, is the etymological source of the English word predicate. Yes, as in the grammatical term. The definition of predicate in this philosophical context isn't identical to the definition of predicate in the grammatical context, but if you consider what a grammatical predicate is through the lens of Aristotelian logic, then actually they are pretty similar. This is a fascinating connection and I want to explore it a little bit deeper. In logic, the act of predication is defined as the affirmation of something about the subject of a proposition. So, in logic, a predicate is what is affirmable about the subject of a proposition. With these technical definitions in mind, we can redefine Aristotle's categories as the highest classification of predicates. At last, we've arrived at the most succinct technical definition of what these categories actually are, and furthermore, what their purpose is. The point of the categories is to categorize predicates. If you were to just Google search the definition of the Aristotelian categories online, you'd probably get a definition like this one, but as you've just seen, it takes a whole lot of prior knowledge to make sense of what that actually means, because predicate just sounds like, you know, the part of the sentence with the verb in it. Another familiar English word derived from that Latin loan translation, predicamentum, is predicament. Today, a predicament is a sticky situation, but originally, the English word predicament meant category in this Aristotelian sense. It's not clear how predicament developed a negative connotation, and since it's not really relevant to our story, there's no point in dwelling on that question. But what is relevant to our story is that the word predicament 
entered the English language a century before the Greek-derived word category did. According to the written record, the negative sense of predicament first appears during the 1580s. And check this out. That's the same decade during which category is borrowed into English for the first time. This, to me, suggests that the pejoration, or the negative evolution, of the word predicament prompted the new borrowing of Aristotle's original Greek version of this word in order to avoid confusion over the semantics of category and a bad situation. However, knowledge of the original etymology of predicament seems to have lingered on through the 19th century, at least among intellectuals, as we can see in the following excerpt from the 19th century British philosopher John Stuart Mill. In wonderfully meandering and difficult prose, he writes, quote, The categories, or predicaments, the former a Greek word, the latter its literal translation in the Latin language, were believed to be an enumeration of all things capable of being named, an enumeration of the highest kind, i.e., the most extensive classes into which things could be distributed, which, therefore, were so many highest predicates, one or other of which was supposed capable of being affirmed with truth of every nameable thing whatsoever. End quote. During the late 17th century, the English word category began its downward descent from the ivory tower of philosophers and intellectuals and into the common speech of everyday people. The word lost its strict adherence to logical propositions and predications and simply became a word for a group of similar stuff. That's about as everyday sounding as a definition can get. In general, specialized terms, whether belonging to the realm of philosophy or any other intellectual discipline, tend to become more general over time, so the eventual direction of category semantic evolution fits this bill quite predictably. From the ancient Athenian court to a college-level exposition of formal logic, we've covered quite a bit of ground today, and I hope you learned a thing or two that you didn't know before. All right, that's it for this one. Again, if you want to help support the show, patreon.com slash wordsforgranted is your ticket. If that's not in your budget but you still want to help out, why not leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice? Those reviews really help the show grow. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter, both of which are at Words for Granted. And if you have any comments, questions, or concerns about the show, feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day. I'll talk to you all soon.